I'm enjoying every bit of it, and I don't want it to change. <laughs> so you, you can relate to that, right? Okay, let's turn to Second Peter. We're going to continue on our study there. Thought I meant, mentioned too. We've I've mentioned it in the past, but I don't bring it up. And but it's getting close. We've got some a few days off Labor Day weekend in particular scheduled to go up to Indiana and see my mom. And so uh, I guess that's about the only thing I know next on our calendar, church-wise. But I'll be gone. We'll, we will be gone over a, a Sunday there, and I don't have a speaker lined up yet, but we'll, we'll work something out in due time. And then somewhere around the first week of October, I think it is, we have a this, uh, that's a, that was just a jaunt to Indiana. It's really over the weekend. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's Labor Day, Monday, and I think we come back on Tuesday. And then, uh, but in first week of October is when we're going to take a real vacation. We've had very few of those in our life. Um, so, and we tried last year, but you remember Owen came. He destroyed. He ruined the whole thing. But it was worth coming back for, of course, by all means. No, we got down there on Saturday and Sunday morning. I got up. We went to church. And Sunday afternoon, I was just, I had my books spread out on the bed and, you know, and a Bible there. And I was studied away. And I thought, this is going to be one great week. And Monday morning, 7 o'clock, we got the call. <laughs> And that brought all that to an end. So we're going to try it again this year. We just said no pregnancies this year now. We're, we got vacation scheduled, and you can't schedule anything else. Okay, Second Peter chapter 1, and we've been studying here about the false teachers. And, of course, the false teachers were brought in after Peter had outlined for us the proper way the expected way in which we are to prosper and grow in grace and maturity and develop the godly qualities and character as he gives us in chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7, all of these character qualities that he says in verse 8, if these things be in you and abound, that is, if they are there, in abundance. They are your full possession. Then he says, you won't be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's an interesting thing because you would think that in order to be fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we just have to study the Bible and know everything it said, wouldn't you? Know the doctrine. And it's important. But these are practical things. These are things that we need to develop on a practical, inward basis. Expressing themselves outwardly to others. And having done so, then we will increase in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We won't be barren. We won't be unfruitful. And then the end result then is that we would receive, in verse 11, that rich welcome, or, as the King James says here, an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly, superabundantly, into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And that entrance is going to mean a whole lot. You know, this is the focal point right here. To not receive that abundant welcome does not bode well. Oh, there may be an entrance, and you may be received, but maybe not as happily as you could have had you pursued this line here that Peter has laid out for us in growth and grace and understanding and and all these other qualities of character that we're to add on to our lives. But in view of all that, now comes the warning in chapter 2. False teachers are going to enter in, slip into the church, and seek to lead astray. We look... Or I, mean, I don't think I mentioned, I don't know that we looked there, but back in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 20, I want you to turn there for a moment. Acts chapter 20, Paul's on his final missionary journey and he's passing by Ephesus. He doesn't want to take the time to travel into the city, so the elders come out to meet him and he's having his final words with them. And he tells them, reminds them how that that, uh, in verse 24, Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, none of these things, well, actually in verse 21, he said, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, he says, none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. Well, according to Peter, the way to finish your course with joy is to develop these qualities in your life so that you won't be unbarren or unfruitful when your course of life is over. And then he says, And the ministry which I have received with the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. However, he says, wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God or the whole purpose of God. Or we might say it, the entire plan of God. Paul had laid it out fully for them. But, notice in verse 30, the warning that follows this. He says, also of your own... Well, actually in verse 29, he says, I know that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. The little flock, by the way. It's a diminutive term there. The little flock. Also, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And there's an article there. It's to draw away the disciples after them. And so, we find this regular pattern that when the truth is presented, when it is received, all of a sudden, we've got to put up our guard immediately. And it demands that we have a full, thorough knowledge of this counsel of God, this plan of God, what the outworking of that plan is, what the end result will be, which Peter, in essence, lays it out for us here in chapter 1. 
concerning the kingdom of God and of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That earthly kingdom which will be established in which Christ will rule. Of course, now there's the heavenly aspect of his kingdom. And this may be a very encompassing term here. Covering both aspects because the Lord Jesus Christ will be the ultimate ruler during that 1,000 year period. And so all that this earth and all that men have sought for and desired, peace and righteousness upon the earth and prosperity and abundance will all be brought to pass under this rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you better look out because the false teachers are right there, ready to deceive you and lead you away. Now, by the way, that tells us something, too. This little diminutive flock, this little small flock that that, uh, Paul was addressing in Acts 20, it tells us something here. Look, and I'll remind you, we we brought it out, but look in chapter 2 and verse 2. Many, it says, shall follow their pernicious ways or destructive ways, corrupted ways. Many shall follow. What does that tell us then about the size of the flock that's in the true way, that's committed to following Christ? Well, I would venture to say, as you can just look around you today, it's going to be small in number. Well, Peter goes on to give us some examples which we looked at Previously, in verses 4 through 9, examples of those who um, had fallen into error, who sinned, who were deceived, and the consequences associated with it. And he tells us in verse 10, the first part of the verse there, well, in verse 9, he talks about the godly. He, re, he, he turns back to the godly. He says, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, in verse 11, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime, Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam and the son of Bosar, who loved the rages of unrighteousness. Now he's transitioning here, and I'm going to stop right there. He's transitioning over to another illustration with, with Balaam. 
And I may make it that far and I may not. So we'll, we'll, we'll stop here and see. Now, what I want us to note, a couple of things here at the beginning. Uh, in verse 10, you'll notice it says, presumptuous are they self-willed. And you'll see the words are they are in italics. That's our indication that they've been supplied by the translators. It's not there in Greek. And so what it says is presumptuous, self-willed. And some that translate it literally add an exclamation mark there. So in view of these, he says, that are these false teachers, it's like he said, presumptuous, self-willed. Are these people, these false teachers, presumptuous or daring is is another good literal translation. Daring and self-willed. They have no regard for the truth. Not afraid to speak evil of dignities, or literally there, it's glories in the plural. Glories, evidently here, is a term talking about those who are in places of authority or power. As a matter of fact, we even see in the next verse, he makes a comparison with God's governmental administration here of angels. Angels, he says, whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Well, angels are greater in power and might. The word power there is referring to outward manifestations of power, that which we can visibly see. Whereas the other word, that's the word iskus, the word might is our familiar word, dunamis, power, translated in other places, so you can see the conflict there, power and might, very, very similar terms. One has to do with the outward manifestations of power, Iskus, dunamis, has to do with the inward power, the unseen power. Now let's look at a couple examples so we get an idea of what he's talking about. Look at Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. Mark chapter 12, verse 30. When he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And the word strength here is our word iskus. This is the first commandment. Now, so what you would understand then, of course, heart, soul, mind are all inward. Iskus. To be manifested outwardly with all thy strength in all that you do. Turn also to um, Ephesians 1 and verse 19. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. And it says there... 
And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? And, of course, that power he's speaking of is what he has manifested to us, to those who believe. Now, if you look at a couple other expressions here, look at the probably the easy and most familiar one as far as the word dunamis is concerned. Let's look at Acts 1.8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, a very familiar verse in that respect. And here he says, but ye shall receive power, dunamis, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And you would associate this word with the idea of ability, the inward strength to do something. So it's not necessarily manifested. There's not an, uh, an outward manifestation of power, but you have the inward strength to go carry out what he's talking about, which in here is to be a witness to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 25, another example of that. And I think this one will help make it very, very clear as well. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 15, we're looking at the parable of the talents there. And there he says, and, to, and unto one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to every man according to his several ability, or his own ability. And the word ability there is dunamis, his own power, his own ability. And so God distributed here these talents, he's saying, the... the um, um, this man here who's traveling into this far country and entrusted these talents to these various servants according to their ability. Of course, that's what God does for us. According to the strength or ability that we have. And so, of course, we all know that we don't have the same abilities. We don't have the same uh, uh, strength of inward person to do various things. I know where my limitations lie most of the time. Sometimes I get myself in trouble and I got to backtrack a little bit because I step into areas I don't need to be in. And I'm sure you have the same experience. I used to be able to work on a car, but I don't touch it much anymore. <laughs> I can take a screw out and put it back in. I might be able to change the oil still or a starter or maybe an alternator or whatever. Beyond that, I'm out of my element anymore. I don't step into areas that I don't like that, that I don't have any ability in. Well, that's what he's talking about here. Angels who have both power and might. They have the iskus and they have the dunamis. 
They have the, the, the power that goes with the authority of their position. And they carry that out. They manifest it in an outward way. But they also have the inner strength. They have the ability. We may not have all the full strength, all the full ability that goes along with that. And what he's telling us here then is that even these angels who have that power, who have that ability, restrain themselves and don't even bring accusation against these false teachers. That judgment is left up to God and God alone. But in comparison, he's telling us then, these false teachers are so arrogant, so prideful, so boastful, they step into things they have no knowledge of. And matter of fact, he says they're ignorant of. And he says they speak evil of these things. And they just don't know. And so when you hear people talk like that, you try to share the gospel of God's kingdom with them. And they don't respond. They don't see it. They remain ignorant of it. It may be because they don't have the ability. God hasn't blessed them with that, to be able to see that, to understand that. And so we have to recognize those things as a measure of God's grace given to us to be able to comprehend the truth of his word. And then remain steadfast to it. Whereas those, he says here, are willing to bring railing accusation. Or the actual word there is where we get our word blasphemy. Blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. He said angels aren't, they don't do that. But these that are presumptuous, self-willed. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Now, when a lesser being at this point in time does what God's higher creature at this point in time, the angels won't do, tells us something about these false teachers. Now, of course, we know that there's a day coming. When those who have submitted to the lordship of Christ and his authority are going to one day be made a little higher than the angels. The order is going to be reversed. And we can find that in Psalm 8 and Hebrews chapter 2. That order will be reversed. But for all, for all men, not necessarily. He tells us here, um, I want us to look over at, well, actually I'll just continue on with verse 12. He said they're like natural brute beasts, animals, made to be taken and destroyed. That is, those who, are, who act according to their impulses. They act according to their nature. They act according to their lusts and their desires. Just like a natural brute beast would. Speaking evil of these things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Now, this is an interesting phrase. It's a play on words Paul uses here. The words in verse 12, utterly perish, is the same word as corruption. Slightly different form of it. 
And so an actual translation of that would say, shall surely or shall surely shall be thoroughly corrupted in their own corruption. They shall, he's, he's saying, surely shall be thoroughly corrupted in their own corruption. That is simply to say, what they are corrupting in the lives of people and those they've deceived is going to come right back on their own heads and it's going to corrupt them. As a matter of fact, when then he says in verse 13, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, the wages of hire. And of course, that leads us right into where Peter was going with, with Balaam. And we'll find out what his desire was. But I want to finish up these things here talking about, because there's some interesting things here. He says they count it pleasure to riot in the daytime, which is, by the way, is an interesting thing. Even uh, so I'm told and understand that even in uh, the culture of that day with Greeks and Romans, though they were uh, free and very expressive in doing those things, they didn't really do it in the daytime. I didn't know that. It was something they reserved for the night, which is kind of according to most men. It's natural under the cover of darkness to want to be doing those things. But these, he say, he says, have no restraint, no cares about even the daytime. And then he does the same thing again. Notice he says, he says spots they are and the words they are are in italics. They're not there in Greek. And so you could do it again with an exclamation mark. Spots and blemishes. It's like... Peter's a little fed up with this whole idea. Presumptuous. Spots. Blemishes. You could just about picture yourself in a congregation. You know, when somebody's writing against sin. And he's just speaking out. You know, I mean, they might be sitting right out here. And he's talking, saying, spots, blemishes, presumptuous, daring. Describing the kind of people he's speaking of here. Sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Boy, we don't practice the love feast today. Primarily for that. And that is, I think, one of the reasons it's, it has not been practiced in the church for a long, long time on a regular basis. Now, some do because it got so easily out of hand. And you remember back in 1 Corinthians 11 what Paul said about that, about food. When they came to meet together, to fellowship together, to fellowship with the Lord, to take the bread and the cup and the kinds of things that were going on in the church in that day, people getting their... Uh, ahead of time, eating up all the food, the poor that came and didn't have anything to bring, were left hungry, and all kinds of sin was going on at a very time when it should have been the fullest manifestation of God's love and communion and fellowship of his people. 
when they gathered together. I like that chapter because it says they gathered together. When you come together, that's what the church is. It's God's people coming together, the assembly. And those kinds of things shouldn't be going on there. Well, I mean, these kinds of descriptions that he has of them, having eyes full of adultery, which is literally there, an adulteress. We all know what eyes do. Eyes are the gate at which those things are brought right into your own inward being. But they're also the way in which you can look at another person and you can, you can tell what they've got on their mind by the expression of their eyes. The eyes are really interesting things as far as expressing feeling, expressing emotion, uh, sending a message, but also what you can send to that person and how they receive it into their very being. And he's calling them here those having eyes full of an adulteress that cannot seize from sin. And so, though they may have been guilty of these very things of adultery, the primary emphasis here is a comparison in the same way that they cannot get their fill because of the lust of their own flesh. So these false teachers, he says, are doing the same thing. It's like something that consumes them. The way of truth simply does not exist for them. That it, It's not the guide for their life. And he calls them beguiling, unstable souls, deceived, And they have a heart exercised with covetous practices. Now that word beguiling, it's kind of like the idea of bait, luring, enticing, beguiling in that sense of the word, unstable souls. Now do you see what he says here? Taking in the picture of all that we've discussed up to this point, the kind of growth that should be going on in a Christian's life, what should be taking place, what will result in this abundant entrance into Christ's kingdom, it's the unstable ones who have not done that that these false teachers are looking for. They are the very ones they want to come in and entice and lead away, lead them astray, pulling out, as Paul said in Acts 20, their own disciples after them. Now they don't go out into the world and get their own disciples. Isn't that interesting? They want to come here. They want to come into the church and get their disciples. And of course that's been the history of the church. People being led into, uh, into error and led astray by people who are committed to a false way. He tells us there um, that you know they've exercised their heart with covetous practices. I mean, I can't imagine the judgment that will be theirs for the one who knows how to deceive, knows how to take it advantage, 
knows how to use the eyes and practices those things in order to deceive. Now, of course, if you know, we could land for a long time on this whole idea of the adulteress and adultery and how there are those, both sides, men and women, who know how to seductively go after a person. They can, many of these, and you see them in the news, they know exactly how to go to a person and spot the weak ones and go after them. We think sometimes, well, these things, you know, it just happens. Well, not according to Peter. They don't just happen. They know how to go do those things. And then Peter ends again with his third exclamation point. Cursed children! It's not a pretty picture. These cursed children which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray. They have forsaken the right way. The false teachers who know the right way and then have forsaken it and turned away. And that's the whole crime here. They know what's right and then refuse to do it. And I think sometimes we misunderstand because we have a tendency to want to emphasize that so much of the church today is in darkness. They're blind and they don't know the truth because... No one's ever told them. But oftentimes we forget about the many who are out there who do know the truth. And intentionally, either proactively leading astray or passively just ignoring what the Bible says about the coming kingdom rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. They just ignore it altogether and don't deal with it. Or... Those who are interested, who are proactively seeking God's kingdom, and they seek them to lead them astray with their deceptive practices and their false teaching. Of course, their false teaching of mixture and error, just enough truth to deceive. And now then he tells them, he says, they've forsaken the right way and they've gone astray. We'll skip ahead just a little bit here. Verse 21, he says, It had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it. And and that's our word that we've looked at many, many times. Epinosis. After they have fully known it and understood it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Now, if you'll go back and trace the they's and the them's, you'll find the them here is the false teachers. The ones, and, 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 and probably here, the ones also who have been led astray. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. So you look at two things here. One is when we hear the word of righteousness... When we hear about the word of the kingdom, we are duty-bound 
to respond to it and to respond in a positive way. We should respond with obedience. We should respond with belief. We should respond with faith and act accordingly. And the other thing is we should avoid the way of untruth. We should have our ears and our eyes open and attuned to falseness, false teaching, deception, and those who would come in and corrupt and lead astray. I think sometimes I'm not, you know, you wonder, well, is there false teaching going on here in this church? Are there there's those here who would lead astray? And it seems to me like in today's church, as has been the experience, at least for me, since I have been here, those who hear the word of truth actually just go away. <laughs> they don't want any part of it. They don't want to associate with it. They don't want to enjoy the fellowship of it. They just reject it altogether. And so very few actually embrace that truth. Very few, the many, have been led astray. It's the few, the little flock that Paul was talking about, that has embraced the truth. It hasn't changed since the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he spoke often about the little flock too, didn't he? Well, I'm tempted to go on, but I can't. I better just stop right there. You know, I've, and, and we've talked about it several times, Janet and I, and she's brought it up about all the negativism that seems to be there in the New Testament. But, you, you know, in other words, if you took chapter 1 and compared it with chapter 2, I mean, chapter 2 sounds awful brutal, doesn't it? The judgment that awaits, the consequences of rejecting the truth. But it, that causes us then, or should cause us, to go back to chapter 1 and review again the absolute, wonderful, joyful outcome of the one who remains faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, on that day, when they stand before the Lord, will receive that wonderful entrance into his kingdom that will be expressive beyond all measure in anything that we could possibly imagine. When you think of the joy that will fill your heart on that day when you know you have been received into something that is beyond all imagination that we could even conceive of today, you'll do like the songwriter and say, it was worth it all. Everything that it cost me in this life, everything I had to give up, all the suffering I had to endure, all the pain I went through and the humiliation and the mockery, because of what you believe, because of the, of the faith you hold, and then you'll say, it will be and will have been worth it all. Let's pray. Father, we now thank you for what you've blessed us with in the knowledge of Christ. 
and the sureness of your word, the sureness of the prophetic word, as you've expressed it in chapter 1 of Second Peter. And I pray, Father, that we would grasp that truth and that we would embrace it with our whole hearts, the wonderful things that you have in store for those who remain loyal, steadfast, unwavering in the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.